0: The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, February 3rd, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We hear at The Gist often have high-minded conversations amongst ourselves. For instance, Chris pointed out that the Australians have been even more steadfast wartime allies to the Americans than his Canadians have been. And Mary said, well, beyond the wartime contributions of the Australian military, think about what their military has given us in peacetime. Without the Australian military, we would never have Captain Kangaroo. And Chris, as a Canadian, had to be explained who Captain Kangaroo was, but I opined, and I know you've thought of this too. You know, Captain Kangaroo was always one of those titles that disappointed me. Like, as a child, you hear this description, Captain Kangaroo, and you imagine tails and pouches and leaping ability, and all you get is a mustachioed pedant in a red blazer. So as I said, we discuss very high-minded matters. Here's another one. Mary expressed disquiet about attending rallies in the wake of the election. She thought that as a journalist, it's perhaps improper or could be seen as such. Mary is very ethical. She has training in public radio, and her earnestness on these issues often really does make me rethink my positions. And that's when, over a whiskey-fueled weekend, I will call Mary and beg her to come back, swearing it was only a pretend firing, not a Mary ban, just a Mary pause. But in all seriousness, I do take Mary's point. And I did think about what she was saying. I've been reading up on this question, journalism in the Trump administration. Mary, some professors at the Columbia School of Journalism also, they've been thinking about journalists and political protests. Now, I would say a pro-woman's rally isn't necessarily an anti-Trump rally, but let's not be naive. There was a lot of anti-Trump sentiment there. And I would also say that attending a rally to see what's going on, you know, wearing your hat as a journalist, is good. It can inform you. It's not the same as participating. But I get that there's a line. And if we draw the line at making a sign that seems a little facile, you know, unless the sign's a really good sign, like if it becomes a meme, I have a different calculation than Mary does. I went to the women's rally against Trump or with the women's rally in general because my children and my girlfriend wanted me to be there. My girlfriend wanted me to be there. My children needed me to be there. At least my oldest one did. The youngest one has more of a casual relationship with politics. He likes the jokes. He doesn't love the issues. He's kind of a Jimmy Fallon type, you know, although... He is a non-college-educated white male, and come to think of it, he doesn't have a job, so he might be leaning GOP. Got to keep an eye on that. Okay, but in my calculation, I am a journalist, I'm also a dad, and one who thinks that it's close to a duty to expose your politically-minded child to the freedom of assembly, so I think I did my job, and yesterday I did my job again. We were near the Brooklyn Borough Hall, my oldest child and I, and we heard there was a protest by Yemeni bodega owners who closed their stores in solidarity and to attend this rally. So maybe you heard New Yorkers howling in unison, where else am I going to find $2.50 quarts of milk that expire in three days? But in reality, this protest drew in a few thousand, low thousands, let's say. It was not exactly a protest, though. The sign said, Immigrants are Americans, and New York loves immigrants, and immigrants get the job done. Here, the program Democracy Now! interviewed uh, someone holding a sign, Mackie Dakhuali. My name is Mackie, and my sign reads, My mom removes her hijab before leaving the house, so I wore mine. The reason why I made this sign today is because after realizing that my mom, as of late, ever since the inauguration, has been scared to wear her hijab, because she does a housekeeping job, and she fears that people might accuse her of being a thief just because she's a Muslim. So she does not want to be identified as a Muslim in the workplace. The thing that's so funny about it and that breaks my heart is because during September 11, as a child, I was roughly around like 12, 13 years old, and I was scared to be identified as a Muslim, and she motivated me to be a Muslim. So that sentiment was everywhere, and I was asking myself, was it really even attending a protest? I was attending something like a mass expression of good manners, or a mass expression of what this country should be saying all the time. And this this part made me proud. It was what New York was saying. I think it had the effect of making tangible to my son, who goes to school with kids from all backgrounds, that more people welcome immigrants than shun them. This may not be true. It may be more aspirational than true, but it's true in our world. Though, as I saw different speakers, elected officials, chief among them, praising immigrants, vowing to protect immigrants, lauding the place of immigrants in this municipality, I was struck by a thought that what was going on wasn't so much of a protest as an argument. And the argument being made in so many words was this, New York City will protect you from America. Now, maybe that's not an argument. Maybe that's a promise. But at least yesterday, I believe the promise to be true. So on the show today in the spiel, it is a taxonomy of Trump mouthpieces. But first, world traveler rock and roll sideman and organist of unusual skills, Franz Nikolai. Franz Nikolai, well, I'll read the little blurb on his book. He's a musician who lives in New York. A musician? I met him singing the high parts and playing the keyboards for the Hold Steady. Probably my favorite band, uh, Post Springsteen. He also plays on uh, crazy circus music, I'll call it, with the World Slash Inferno Friendship Society. And Guignol, is that how you pronounce Like Grand Guignol? Guignol. Guignol which uh, I know in France it was like this macabre theater. Is right. That, so your music with Guignol it's like a that?
1: Well, it's a Balkan jazz band, essentially. It's accordion, <laughs> clarinet, tuba, and
0: drums. That's awesome. So Franz Nikolai's new book is The Humorless Ladies of Border Control. It is a travelogue. It is either the best way to experience Ulan Bator, Serbia, without having to leave your home, or the worst way to listen to Franz Nicolai play, because it's only words and no keyboards. Hello, Franz. How are you? Hey, Mike. Let's talk about the economics of this trip. How does what you did make sense for you? Well, economically, the cheaper you travel, the
1: the, the, the less people you have to depend on coming to your shows. I mean, right. I was traveling at this point. Sometimes with my wife, often by myself, you know, either on a train or just in a in a compact rental car. So you're talking, you know, maximum fifty bucks a day that you're spending. So if you can make a hundred bucks, two hundred bucks on the show and the merch, that's a pretty good margin. <laughs> you can make a living that way. I mean, you have to be out two hundred days a year, two hundred fifty oh, days a year. God. But...
0: So so when you leave America, you got your booking agent back here. How many dates were solid? What was the plan? How much was going on faith that once you you know got booked and served? you'd get booked in belgrade
1: (laughs) i have a i have a patchwork of booking situations you know i have a i have an agent in germany i had someone booking me in poland and then the eastern europe stuff it um, was just old-fashioned, like, Google Belgrade plus DIY punk and see what website came up and send an email and, and, and see what I could put together. And I had a guy in, in St. Petersburg who was booking Russia and the Russian-speaking Eastern Ukraine.
0: Did they know you? Did most of the places you got booked into know you with fans who are, you know, hoping to see specifically you?
1: Well, they got the internet
0: okay <laughs>
1: yeah no I mean-, I mean either they knew my stuff or they knew some of the
0: bands that i that i've been associated with Right. So we can't just say random American with mustache, 50 people sure to show up. Although people do do that. Yes. I mean, that's, all, that's I another that's, model. of That's my Pandora station. <laughs> Give me someone who once had a handlebar. Yeah. I'll take it.
1: No, I mean, I mean, there are lots of, you know, American bands and, and singer songwriter types that you've never heard of who just sort of jump on a train and, and, and go for it.
0: And not, just, not lots, but there are some. So where in your career were you when you embarked on, say, the first part of uh, the journey?
1: Uh, I left the hold steady at the end of 2009. I had done a brief stint as a hired gun in Against Me and then struck off basically full-time on my
0: own. Against Me is really hardcore punk, but their lead singer... Grace, what's her name?
1: Laura Jane Grace.
0: Laura Jane Grace, who transitioned. I mean, she wrote an amazing memoir about kind of the the rough uh, interaction with the fans, right? Who didn't always the old against me fans didn't always accept who she had become.
1: That's right. I think I came in at maybe the the least popular phase with their old fans. (laughs) Wow. You know this the uh, the second major label record, but for me at that point it was like after uh, you know after getting burned out on the hold steady to join another rock band with people i'd been friends with for a decade and have no responsibilities other than to get up and play it was like it was very refreshing for me although it was a hard time for the band i think
0: okay so Mm. you had you had done the big bands where you could play either you know five shows at a four thousand seat venue or like you know not quite
1: that big okay
0: (laughs) a couple well in new york i mean i I think the hold steady could book big brooklyn shows yeah you could play minneapolis shows yeah you could be one of the big acts in Lollapalooza. Yeah, you could definitely open for the Rolling Stones. Which we you did, did do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I mean, p- part of it was that I, I felt like I needed a new challenge as a performer. Mm-hmm. There's a way in which, if you're playing a big show like that, um, people are so primed to have a good time that that you don't have to do anything other than the 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 motions that you already know how to do. Yeah, and so the the challenge for me of of It was like a little bit of a vaudeville idea of like, can I go by myself to a venue where
0: people don't know who I am and command the room? Yeah, and make it even harder by making the venue be in the developing or once developed world <laughs> yeah. and to have the actual time in between the venue as you write in the book like the the bar graph of you you say you're a musician but you're basically a traveler those mm-hmm. are twin towers <laughs> and the musician part is a matchbook on the bar graph That's
1: right. Well,
0: I mean one of the other things
1: about about traveling by yourself is you have a lot more freedom to go to places that you want to go if you if you're traveling with with a five piece band and some crew and stuff you there's a there's a certain financial threshold you have to get over so you end up playing you know very established touring spots you do you know you berlin london manchester Mm -hmm. new york chicago right so one of the things i noticed about some people that i knew that that toured by themselves like the rapper sage francis or like matt and kim who are a duo they had the the flexibility because they were such a small operation to Book a couple shows to make the money, and then and then use that to fund going places they were interested in going. So I sort of I picked up that model, and because my expenses were so low, I could go to places where I wasn't guaranteed to to make a lot of money, just because I was interested.
0: And your wife is Ukrainian. Ukrainian American. She's born here. Oop speaks Russian. Speaks Ukrainian. Speaks Ukrainian. Yeah, yeah, that came in handy. And you are what's your ethnicity? Complicated.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Habsburg Mongrel is what I usually call it. There's some th-
0: Well, you were at many places of the great Habsburg Empire. That's right. Years, yeah, yeah. years and years later.
1: That's right. Well, one of the things about sort of the way I look is that it's it it ambiguous enough where a lot of people all over the world they know I'm not from there, right. but they think maybe I'm the nearest whatever the local uh, signifier of foreignness is right.
0: So you embark on the trip. Does it start off? Well, does it start off meeting your expectations? Because the journey is half the fun slash half the exhaustion?
1: Well, I should clarify that the book covers three years of touring. It, it starts with one particular six month chunk. And then and then I go back over the next couple of years. I sort of classify the, the the destinations in two ways, right? One is the established touring circuits—Germany, mm-hmm. England—places where I know more or less what I'm going to get, and then the places where the point of it is the the traveling and the adventure. So it's, you know, like for example, a couple weeks into one of the later tours, I got robbed for 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 everything in my tour cash in in Paris, and I contemplated giving up and going home, but then it's like, well, I'm only two weeks into a six week tour. If I go home now, I've really lost a bunch of money and (laughs) and time. And so I kind of have no choice but to get up and get back in the car and and carry on.
0: So the parts where you were with Maria, Mm. what was her level of buy in just as excited as you were? Yeah, well we
1: she was we were playing as a duo. So she was part of the whole the whole s- the scheme. She had just finished her dissertation and had the window of opportunity in her life to to come along and particularly the Trans-Siberian railroad was something we'd talked about doing for for a bunch
0: of years. I know you write in the book about how the traveler has to make Sort of stereotypical judgments. You yes. see a highway, and it's like, "Well, this tells me this about the nature of society." <laughs> you meet a guy at a bus station; he's all the guys, right? Right. But you probably did learn so much about the nature of music and how it relates to the societies. You can learn a
1: great deal tr- this way, in the way that you couldn't necessarily as a journalist. I think I because think you're you're, right. you know the great thing about being a touring musician is people have their guard down around you because. They have never met you. You're a stranger and they're probably never going to see you again. So if you ask them some some pointed questions, they're going to open up to you because why not?
0: Yeah. You met those Nazi guys in, where was it? In Mongolia. Mongolia. They might, they might know enough not to proclaim their Nazism, although they seem pretty proud of they it. They were so pretty proud of it, yeah. yeah. So you meet... uh Guys who have just the very names of their punk bands, I, I probably sh- the n word. Yeah, uh, I probably couldn't even say on the air. Maybe with a the journalist, they'd know to tamp that down. But they were proud to tell you, no, this is punk. Isn't this the definition of punk?
1: Right. Well, this is one of the one of the great controversies in the history of punk. Right. Is it all about confrontation and and offending people, or is there something more ethical about it?
0: Yeah. Well, I think I don't know. I I, I think the overriding emotion of punk. Some people tell me that it's questioning authority, but I think that's a little elevated. To me, it's anger. A lot of anger is about dissatisfaction and questioning authority, but it, to me, seems the angriest music.
1: In a good way and a bad way. That's why I found it so liberating. I mean, I came to punk rock relatively late in my life because I grew up in rural New Hampshire and, you know, in the pre-internet age. And so I was, I was in my twenties. What are to age against Vermont? Yeah. (laughs) I was in my twenties really before I had access to a punk scene. Um, and you know, late converts are the most enthusiastic as, as they say. Um, and for me it was just sort of this, this alchemy of, of emotion from, from sort of glum melancholy sadness into a more focused and, and active, um, and And, in a way, more useful emotion,
0: yeah, during the travels, the travail, some of the travails of the travels, and things got bad. and you there were no routes, direct routes between cities and out in the rain sometimes. were the shows always an oasis? The shows are the one thing that's always th- the same every
1: night, in a way. that's that's sort of I- in a situation in which you are far from home that is your home base that's the sort of familiar comfort because you know the routine um so in that sense it's like yeah you you show up and you you ask your list of questions like is there wi-fi can i get a beer what time is sound check (laughs) you know can i what what, what's for dinner play the show sell the merch go to the sleeping place introduce yourself to the, the stranger whose floor you're sleeping on you know it's the destination it's where you 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 get those those creature comforts
0: yeah and how would you judge if a show went well your own internal a gauge or audience reaction, or if it was warm and there was Wi-Fi. <laughs> I mean, there's all sorts of ways that a show can
1: go well. Obviously, if there's a hundred people there and they're all going nuts, that's a great show. Yeah, there are also situations where there can be five people there and you can have an amazing show too. You like get off the stage, do it in the round on the floor, have you know a real interaction. You know, if if the, if it's five people who are really invested in the in the show, that can be a great show too.
0: Are the rubrics for what's a great show in a tour? that you describe in the book similar to the rubrics of What's a Great Show with The Hold Steady? I mean, I always think
1: that you want to play for a crowd of 5,000 people as if it was 50 people and a crowd of 50 people as if it was 5,000 people. Uh-huh. So you're,
0: what you're saying is 500 is the great size for a crowd, the perfect ideal of a crowd. Actually, I think that's true. <laughs> I think there is sort of a
1: platonic ideal <laughs> of, a, of, a, of a show that's big, but not too yeah. big. And it is around
0: 500 yeah. people. And, and, and the key thing is that the venue holds about 507 and then you're fine. <laughs> like, you don't want the 500 in you know, some huge yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. They they say that as you go East in Europe, you go back in time in general. Mm. I mean, there's probably a decade to latitude calculation that I haven't done yet, but are there any exceptions to that?
1: Well, there's political reasons why things can look like more of a throwback. I, I always think of crossing the border from Croatia into Serbia. Yeah. Croatia has a, has a much more modernized economy and has the, the tourist economy and, um, you know, I think they they joined the euro. Mm-hmm. Maybe not great timing, but they yeah. did. And also, and, they, they have um, this
0: big Italian influence. Yeah. They share the Adriatic coast. Serbia, more in the Russian realm. That's kind of exactly right. So Slavic, yeah. Yeah,
1: when you and then so you cross into Serbia, and 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 you're back in you know donkey carts, yeah, uh, sort of scenery.
0: And 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 geez, here I go doing the thing of you know you spend a couple of days there and you generalize. Yeah. But I do find. An openness to the people versus a guardedness of the people, and of course, that's totally shaped by their circumstances.
1: Yeah, it really depends, and it also depends the circumstances in in which you meet them. Right, right. In in particularly in post communist countries, there's people's public face, which can be very hard to crack, and then their their private face once they're once they're in the home, which is is very welcoming.
0: Okay, so let's get to the Ulaanbaatar part that's why people come they want ulaanbaatar like how'd you get to mongolia why'd you get to mongolia what was there for you in mongolia
1: well we were doing these uh shows along the trans-siberian railroad and once you get to lake baikal you basically have two options on your route you can either continue on to vladivostok which is three more days of there's not much there or you can take that right turn um on the 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 Mongolian and end up in beijing and we thought that would be more interesting um i had a couple contacts in in china and we booked a couple shows in china we figured we'd stop off in ulaanbaatar because why not and then um you know i didn't have any contacts for playing a show there so that was a little bit of a process of like posting on expat blogs and um you know getting up in the middle of the night and calling phone numbers to random bars how uh, many
0: people live in ulaanbaatar
1: I don't know the exact number. I mean, it's a city. It's a city. Yeah, seems
0: like a city, not Cincinnati, but
1: I mean, it's it's like a lot of these Central Asian cities. It's it's not the most beautiful thing, you know. It's sort of Soviet built. A lot of these gray concrete towers in the middle of a in the middle of the the, the step.
0: <laughs> yeah. Did you have fermented yak's milk?
1: I did. And? Yeah. I mean, I, I I thought it was fine. Maria and I sort of had a division of labor because I'm a I'm a vegetarian and. The primary food there was was mutton. Yeah, um, you're lucky
0: it wasn't horse.
1: <laughs> for all i know yeah. yeah mutton and yeah and fermented horse milk which she couldn't stomach so every time we got a bowl of each we sort of i, I would pass her the the mutton and she would pass me the the, the fermented horse milk
0: oh, see that could be the love story out of this mutton for horse milk that's right <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful <laughs> franz Nikolai, the author of the humorless ladies of border control touring the punk underground from belgrade to ulan batar thank you so much franz thank you mike and now the spiel so yesterday kellyanne conway brought up the bowling green massacre which the media did not report but that's not true i found this tape vspn week four 2005 season and bowling green falls to one and two omar jacobs Almost a non-factory does manage three touchdown passes, but they're never in the game and they lose it by a final of 48 to 20. Well, maybe that wasn't the massacre Kelly had in mind. I don't know what she had in mind. In a normal administration, that's close to a firing offense. It just turned into another consequence-free example of wackiness from Kellyanne. Trump says he loves Conway, tells her to go on the shows that no one else will go on, and darn it, she holds her own. She does so through risible, mockable misstatements, which Trump sees as truth-telling. We obsess over Trump's hairpiece, which actually turns out to be real if pharmacologically aided. But let's talk about Trump's mouthpieces, who are unreal, yet as compelling as any hairpiece could claim to be. First, you have Kellyanne Conway. She's feisty. She argues back. And this is important. She doesn't necessarily speak for the president or then the candidate. How and when did Donald Trump conclude that the president was born in the United States? You'll have to ask him that. That's a personal decision. Actually, it's a factual statement, but no matter. Trump likes Conway because he sees these interviews as sport. And in a way they are, but Trump sees them as a sport without rules. There is no out of bounds. And any counterargument is a good counterargument, so long as it's strongly worded like that lame hackneyed trick of turning around a phrase. Here is Chris Wallace interviewing Conway this last Sunday. Thursday. Well, so it was it, mutual it's, not a, it's not a but good they thing, is talk- it, that, that one of our closest allies, our uh, immediate neighbor to the South, and they had a meeting scheduled for Tuesday? You, don't th- you think that's a good thing? It's
1: a great thing that they spoke for an hour well, after, after about that.
0: having an, uh, the state visit? I'll tell you what's in.
1: not a great thing. Here's not a great thing. It's not great that we have a $60 billion trade deficit with Mexico.
0: And later in the same interview. Kellyanne, do you understand how offensive that is?
1: I understand how offensive it was to never be taken
0: seriously that Donald Trump could be elected president. On great days, we were ignored. On most days, a lot we were of it, mocked. Lot of Kelly, do you understand you're lying? What I understand is Donald Trump won't lie down to foreigners. Kelly, do you understand you're being unresponsive? Like the way the Democratic Congress have been unresponsive to the machinists of Indiana. It's really not that hard a trick. In fact, you can pivot on any question. And if you draw a blank, you could just pivot on the fact that it is a question with, you know, the question you should be asking. So that's one breed of mouthpiece. The white belt jujitsu of Kellyanne Conway that Trump sees as black belt. The next is Sean Spicer.
1: Photographs of the inaugural proceedings were intentionally framed in a way, in one particular tweet, to minimize the enormous support that had gathered on the National Mall. This was the first time in our nation's history that floor coverings have been used to protect the grass in the mall. That had the effect of highlighting any areas where people were not standing, while in years past, the grass eliminated this visual.
0: He's just angry. He's just yelling and huffing. And you know the phrase, we could disagree without being disagreeable? Spicer thinks it's so much more fun if you're disagreeable. Spicer doesn't come from Trump's inner circle, so the rage may be a reflection on his relationship with his boss at some level. But a guy who is in the inner circle is Tom Barrack. He's an old business friend of Trump. He ran the inauguration. He's the opposite of angry. He's sunny. He tries to charm you with a reasonable tone, and he is just full of nonsense. It was a wonderful tribute. At the inauguration, President Obama, another great president was was great, whatever it was in both instances, was significant. For President Trump, it was phenomenal. He had a week, six days of the events. Um, It was a different security regime. We can talk about all the elements that made it more complicated, but it was equally awesome. And now he's president of the United States and he's off to work. He was the one giving these gobbledygook answers about how Trump could have made an honest mistake about crowd size. It harkened back to his convention testimonial, which he delivered through a wireless mic, which amounted to a long story about how Trump once signed an autograph for one of his worker's sons. And then there's Boris Epstein. He is the super truculent obfuscator. And then we have Sebastian Gorka. He is a give no ground Pseudo intellectual, or at least an accented baritone.
1: Does the president intend to get rid of everyone who refuses to execute his ideas?
0: That's a bit of a straw man, an argument from extremists I wouldn't expect from the BBC. Uh, Let's let's not get carried away here. Uh, Sean Spicer simply sent a message in his masterful press conference yesterday afternoon where he said, Look, we have. You can dip it down. The phrase, Sean Spicer, masterful press conference, that has been known to crash audio players. Can't, can't let that loose on you. But the unifying theme among all these spokespeople is this. They don't speak for the president. The president doesn't even speak for the president. He's always contradicting himself. It's good fun to have these people on for a larf. And in a normal administration, these would be the positions that you'd want to book on your show, and they might be able to give you insight. But here. In the Trump administration, they're just a sideshow. They're the spin-off characters who may one day get their own gig. We laugh, we gape in slack-jawed amazement, but we learn nothing. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube always warned that if we'd just drilled properly during Operation Jade Helm, the Bowling Green Massacre would have been avoided. Just producer Mary Wilson was delayed for 20 minutes just north of the South Ferry stop on the 4-line. Now there's your Bowling Green Massacre. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, says that subway jokes are alienating. Maybe an Earl Anthony reference for Middle America. A- eh? Andy Bowers, the chief content officer of the Panoply Network, has passed the Bowling Green Massacre. He hopes the administration just pays attention to the town of Smallville, where the high school was hit by a meteor shower in 2005, and the DC media won't cover it, though DC Comics will. The gist. If you like our coverage of masterful Sean Spicer press conferences, listen to our sister show, hang up and listen, for complete coverage of the Brooklyn Nets dominance on the hardwood, and try the Culture Gab Fest as they discuss the cinematically wondrous accomplishment known as monster trucks, Peru Peru, and thanks for listening.